Our first lesson is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. You'll find this in the Bibles we provide on page 964. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I hope you'll take one of our Bibles and have it open. You should always be checking what anyone says up here against what the Bible in front of you says and call us on it if we're not relating what we're saying to the Word word of God. Uh, This is the best part of the service. When I read God's Word, when I start talking, much as I wish I were, much as I sometimes act as if I were, I know in my heart I'm not infallible. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us on him We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The word of the Lord. And our text this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, the final verses, verses 35 38. You'll find this on page 814 of our Bibles. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The Gospel of Christ. In The first week of March, every year here at Cedar Springs, we turn our attention to the global mission of the church, not because it's one of the things to which we're committed, and so we want to take at least part of the year and focus on that, but rather to remind ourselves that this stands at the center of our reason for being as the church of Jesus Christ. This is what it is about. The Bible itself has as its central theme God on mission. God made us in the midst of this glorious cosmos that reveals his glory as that part of this cosmos meant to be in intimate loving fellowship with one another and with him. And in our rebellion we not only triggered our own brokenness and death and alienation from him and from each other, but even triggered the brokenness of this cosmos. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that 
this universe was delivered over to futility, not of its own will, but because of our sin and our rebellion. And it is groaning, longing for our salvation because in our salvation, it will be saved. What do I mean? John 3.16, John writes, for God so loved the cosmos, that's the word he uses, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. As we are saved, we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. God makes his home with us. That is our destiny. And the mission of God is toward that. It is the regathering from all of the peoples of the earth, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, those who will be at last with us in that glorious new creation as the family, the people of God. And that mission is not the result of focus groups or strategy sessions it, it, or mission and vision casting. It is rather given us by our Lord, the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, final verses. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But how are we to engage that mission? Well, we're to baptize, we're to teach, we're to enfold within the body of Christ. But where do we begin? Jesus tells us where, right here. Every year at Mission Conference, we challenge ourselves with four promises that we encourage everybody to make and engage in in some way, shape, or form. We ask you to pray, we ask you to go, we ask you to serve, we ask you to give. And I thought there are four Sundays before the Mission Conference, and I've never done this in all my years here, wouldn't it be good if we prepared for the conference by looking each of these four Sundays at one of these promises that we're going to be asked to make? and try to dig deeper into it and say, why this particular promise? Why is this necessary? And so we start with what Jesus himself tells us in our text is the first essential in order for the mission to be entered into and for the mission to be accomplished. And I want us simply this morning to look at the call to our engagement in mission First, as a call to pray. Remember that prayer is not offering a wish list to a kind of cosmic Santa Claus. It is rather rightly understood. Intimate communion through our union with Christ, intimate communion with our Father in the power of the Holy Spirit in which our thoughts, our desires, our wills, our plans, our lives are aligned with the will of God, the affections of God. Prayer is to be the time when I am turned toward him and receive from him what are to be the passions, the desires, the longings of my life. And so in prayer, I am to be transformed. And yet in that very act, it matters 
well beyond my life, as Paul reminds us in that first lesson, when Paul says, I've been through something incredibly difficult. I thought I was going to die. God in his grace delivers me. God will deliver me. I'm looking to the Lord, but I need you to join me. He says, you must help me through your prayers so that many will note and rejoice in this blessing through your prayers. So when we pray, we are joining not only God on mission, we are joining all those who've gone out in obedience to his name on mission. So it is crucial that we hear what Jesus would teach us about prayer. And in this beautiful final sentence, he makes clear three things that I want us to look at this morning. He says, the harvest is plentiful. In other places, he says to his disciples, lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white unto harvest. Here he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Three things I would have us note in this verse that he tells us. He makes clear the opportunity that mission affords us. And then he tells us the great problem that confronts us in seeking that opportunity, seeking to go on mission with the Lord. What's the great problem? And then finally, he gives us the solution. If only we will take it. First, the opportunity. As God calls you and me to enter back into his mission that lies at the heart of the meaning of human history, he wants us to lift up our eyes and see clearly the opportunity. He says, the harvest is plentiful. Now, for those of you that are New Testament scholars, let me acknowledge that Jesus is speaking specifically in that verse to the disciples going out and recalling the lost people of Israel. But everything that he did in his ministry within Israel was paradigmatic. It was to be a paradigm, a model for his disciples as he, after he accomplished redemption, then sent them out and said, make disciples of all nations. And so what we see here is Jesus setting the model. And he says, look, look at this harvest. Jesus said that when it is estimated that there were only 800 million people on planet Earth. How much more is that true as we have just approached and perhaps today passed seven and a half billion people on Earth? Of that seven and a half billion people, two and a half billion identify themselves as Christians. We know, of course, that many of those, without standing in judgment, but I mean, everybody knows that of those who would say, I'm a Christian, many, perhaps tragically most, simply mean that they are culturally Christian, that perhaps they were baptized as a baby, maybe even went to communicants class and took the Lord's Supper once, got married in a church, and they hope to be buried in a church. Aside from that, that's it. They have no intimate relationship with the Lord. They have no passion to be on mission with Him. And so even as we look at 
two and a half billion professed Christians, the largest religion on earth, over a third, or at least a third of the world's population. We realize that there's much mission to be done there, but I'm not talking about that this morning because most of them at least have access to the gospel. They have people near them who will speak the the gospel of Christ in their language in most cases. So we're setting that apart, though that's crucial still. Tremendous needs there for gospel mission and ministry. Within that 2.5 million professing, I'm sorry, 2.5 billion professing Christians, important difference, Um, only about 470,000, I'm I'm sorry, 470 million, I can't get my head around these big figures, Um, about 470 million are evangelical Christians. I'm sorry, Protestants, that's just Protestants, 470 Protestants. And then the number of evangelicals is significantly smaller than that by evangelical. Evangelicals, I think, represent maybe 240 million. And that's people who believe that we must be born again, as Jesus said, who believe that God in making us his doesn't merely do it sacramentally, but that the sacramental reality of the church is showing us what God is doing and sometimes mediating, but the fact is we must be transformed by grace. God would make his home in us. He wants to make us new. We believe that the Bible is God's word and therefore authoritative, powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing to the vision of bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And we believe that it is our responsibility as Christians and as congregations to reach every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe in the mission that's been entrusted to us. But that number over against the world population is not nearly as large as when we simply think in terms of, well, we're the biggest religion, 2.5 billion out of 7.5 billion. Now, of the 5 billion people who are not Christian, most of them following other religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. There there are 1.5 billion people who are unevangelized, have no mission to them. They may, in some cases, have less than 2% of the population of people who would say, I'm a Christian, but there's no outreach, no witness, no mission. They are without the word. They will live and die their lives without hearing the name Jesus, except perhaps as a curse. They don't have any opportunity to know the grace of God. One and a half billion people. If you think in terms of people groups, ethnic groups, because that was what was in the Great Commission, Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. He would have used the word goyim, but the word that's that translates it in Matthew's Greek is ethne, from which we get ethnic group. And it's estimated that in the world today, there are identifiably 16,500 different people groups, ethnic groups. 2,000 years after Jesus 
entrusted the mission to us. 7,000 people groups are unevangelized. 7,000 groups, 7,000 ethnic. 1.5 billion people. In the four, to make it, for me, very poignant, in the nearly 40 years since I was ordained and began following these kinds of statistics, over one billion people have died without ever hearing the name of Jesus. That's the field. What about the workers? Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Surely, in 2,000 years, with all of the great stories that we hear of, of the, particularly the modern mission movement since Carey and others, the, the great uh, early uh, names that we think of, like Adnarm Judson and Hudson Taylor, and uh, the, the stories of God using them first to hit the coasts, then to go into the inland. Marvelous things done, indeed. But there are 1.5 billion who don't know the Lord and the worldwide mission force that can be counted. Now, there are indigenous missionaries, thank God, going to their own people beyond number that can never be numbered. And they may be the most effective. But from our perspective of our call, the worldwide global mission force, including Protestants and Catholics, is about 430,000. And within that, there are about 230,000 Protestant missionaries. And many, perhaps most of them, are sent by groups that do not any longer believe the necessity of salvation for most people. They are out there out of love for humanity, wanting to show that love in the name of Jesus by doing good things. Thank God for them. But Jesus himself, the only perfect man when he came, when he came healing and helping, taught the Scriptures and proclaimed the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. You can't do it without the Word. And so within that mission core, we don't even know how few there are who are out there proclaiming the good news of the gospel. We do know this, 90% of all missionaries are going to people already reached with the gospel. Now, I'm not for a moment knocking that. Thank God for those who've been called and usually called from within those churches saying, come help us. We, we need your help in order to provide things that we don't yet have, to teach, to help, to give medical care, all these things. Praise God, people go out at cost and give themselves. But what I'm saying is, where are those who are called to the 1.5 billion, to the 7,000 people groups? 10% are working there. And within those that are absolutely unreached, that don't even have 2%, that have no Christian anywhere nearby, no chance of hearing, it's only 3.3% of the whole mission force. So is it not perhaps even more true in our day than in Jesus that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few? Well, what then are we to do? Hey, we're Americans. We know what we're supposed to do. Let's 
let's call a convocation. Let's get focus groups working on it. Let's put together a vision statement and work strategy. We can do this. I'm not knocking any of those things. You reach a place where you need to do it. But isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, therefore work harder, work smarter, you know, do more, get, Jesus said, therefore, pray earnestly, the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers, laborers, into the harvest. First he told us how we are to pray. Pray earnestly. In other words, don't leave today and say, you know, I really should be praying about that, and I'm going to put it on my list along with, Lord, let the Vols have a good season, and, um, you know, uh, let my kids all pass, and uh, don't let anybody I know or love get pregnant out of wedlock. I mean, you know, sort of the standard Christian prayer. No. He says, pray earnestly. Some of the translations say, beseech the Lord of the harvest. Pray with passion. Pray with yearning. Now, the problem is, you can't work that up. You shouldn't. You must not work that up. False fire is an abomination. You don't want to try to make yourself emotional so that God will hear your prayer. How are we to know enough or care enough to pray earnestly? I'd make two suggestions if you haven't already done this or something akin to it. First of all, go to our mission website, as you were encouraged to. Begin to get to know the people with whom we are partnering. Begin to pray for them every day. This person is in this place. I want to find out about that place. I want to know what they're doing. And as you pray, pray, Lord, put on my heart someone with whom I can really connect and begin to develop a passion for ministry through this person or this team that's out there. Take that book that we'll give you at the mission conference that describes all of the partnerships that we're in and that pleads with you to pray earnestly for these people. But that's not yet getting to the heart. They're They've been raised up. They've been sent out. They are there. They, like the Apostle Paul, would say, you must pray for us. We need your prayers so that we might be a blessing through the prayers of many. But Jesus is specifically talking here about places that don't yet have anyone. There's the harvest. There's no one over here. How are we going to get somebody over there? So avail yourself of the tremendous resource that the church in our age has that previous ages didn't have, would have loved to have had. Operation World, Patrick Johnstone. And you don't have to get this if you want the constantly updated one. Just go online to Operation World and make a start by asking them to send, click on the 60-day prayer emails, and they will send you every morning another nation. And they will tell you about that nation. This morning, I had Afghanistan. They're starting New Year. They're starting back through the world. Afghanistan. <laughs> what a disaster. I mean, no Christians except a tiny little few. No single church building in all of Afghanistan. It's the second to the last in the United Nations development 
you know, what resources for life. These people have been at war forever, first with the Soviet Union, now with American troops all over. And I can say this, I hope, because my son was one of the early ones in there, so I'm not knocking our troops at all, who were sent and fought honorably. But brothers and sisters, don't ever fall for the idea that the world will be saved by us trying to export Jeffersonian democracy to nations that don't want it. The world will be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Afghanistan will only be lifted up. The Middle East will only come to peace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are we to get people there? By fervent, earnest prayer. That's what Jesus said. Pray earnestly. And if you begin to study these things, I ended that time in tears because they had a little place where I could click and be led in prayer by an Afghan Christian who pled for his country, for Christ to put down the violence and the warfare and to let his gospel cover that land and bring healing and reconciliation between the tribal groups. My heart went out because I was praying just over the computer with the voice of a Christian who suffers in that land and longs for and loves his land. Pray earnestly, Jesus said. Secondly, he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Don't ever forget the one whom we call Father is the creator of all that is, the redeemer of his people, the one who is mighty to save. It is no harder for him to save a person in any part of this, group, of this world belonging to any people group than it was for him to save an insufferable, arrogant little brat like me who thought that the universe revolved around me. He is mighty to save. Pray, therefore, earnestly, the Lord of the harvest. Pray what? To send out laborers into the harvest. Interesting um, word that he uses there. It sounds so mild. Send out laborers. Would you go? Would you go? That's not what the word means. The previous text, just before this one in Matthew, describes Jesus casting out a demon. The word used for casting out the demon was ek balo, balo, throw, ek, out, throw it out. The word here for the pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers is ek balo. You pray and God is able to get them up and move them out. But he says, you pray. You're my children. I want your prayers. I want you in this with me. You pray. You pray to me, and I will cast them out. We've seen people from this congregation cast out. I remember, uh, forgive me, but the Manes, when they were getting ready to, they sold everything here, each a doctor, each leaving their practices here to go to a very difficult place to practice medicine and do evangelism in Jesus' name. And I walked up to them to greet them, and they said, this is your fault. <laughs> it was humorous, but at the same time, I think what they were expressing was that sense of we had no, really at the end of the day, had no choice. God is sending us out. He's throwing us out there. There, that part of the field, you go. 
you go. And they'd been prayed out. And I wonder if some of our young people here today realize that God wants to throw you out into the wildest, wooliest places, places you could never imagine, places where Americans can't go. You'd have to be creative. You'd have to be a business person, a doctor, a a worker of some sort. But he wants you there for the sake of the gospel. And the way we get people there first, the time comes for meetings and, and vision statements and strategy, but if it doesn't start here, we think we've done it. And we can't do it. That's what Paul said. He said, I thought we were going to die, but God put us in that place in order to show us that it's not about us, but about him. To show us that we can't fix this and we can't even preserve our own lives. It's God alone who can do it. And so you must help us by praying. We must help the manies as they go back and all the others. It's not enough just to give. We stand with them through prayer, earnest, deep, faithful, effectual prayer to the Lord of the harvest. So why is the world the mess it's in? It's not, it's because of us. It's because of me. It's because most of my prayers are about things that I care about and I'm trying to convince God to care about instead of about what he cares about and he wants me to care about. It may be that you spend a lot of time in prayer, that you almost pray without ceasing, but you become obsessed with the things in your own life. Of course we pray about those things, and of course our Father cares, but do we care about that which is at the center of human history? The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out, cast out laborers. What happens when his people pray? I'm almost done. You study the history of prayer movements, and it's incredible. Just one, one story. In the 1720s, Uh, Count Zinzendorf, a wealthy German who'd been raised within pietism, took pity on the Moravian Christians all around him who were being persecuted by the Lutherans. Instead of being embraced as brothers and sisters, they were a little too hot, a little too serious, a little too passionate about the gospel, and they were making the Lutherans very uncomfortable and they persecuted them. And so Zinzendorf, on his vast estate, invited them to come and stay and offered them protection. But he found soon that there were terrible divisions among them. And so he brought them together and made them sit down and write down those areas where they agreed in Christ. And then he said, now on the basis of this agreement, and they established a covenant, the United Brotherhood, I want you to begin to pray. And they began to pray, and they prayed, and they prayed a day, a week, a month. They kept praying, and pretty soon they began to fall in love with one another and with the Lord. And they said that they began to pray with tears, not manufactured, not made up, 
but the fruit of this growing love of Christ and of one another and their passion for a broken world. And at last, the Holy Spirit came on that little band with such power that they committed themselves to 24-hour prayer. They would always have a small group praying, seeking God for two things, the revival of his church, the evangelization of the world. That prayer meeting went on without a break for 100 years. Their children entered it. New Christians entered it. It didn't stop for 100 years. And during that 100 years, the world saw the Great Awakening. In England, Great Britain, Scotland, all over up there, Wales, and the United States. And it was that, many historians have said, that gave us our revolution instead of the French Revolution. It was the Great Awakening that changed the DNA of this country and issued in the land that we had. In fact, it was funny, King George, when he first saw the United States Constitution, said, this is nothing but the work of a bunch of Presbyterian parsons, because it was basically, it was designed after Presbyterian government. So, what are we to do? At the turn of the century, 1999, four Christian leaders, Billy Graham, Bill Bright of Campus Crusade, Paul Cedar, and one other gentleman, oh, five, because John Perkins, the great per John Perkins civil rights leader who has been with us and preached, and one other, sent out a call to the church in the United States of America, a call to extraordinary prayer. And the preamble said this, we strongly urge all churches and all Christians of America to unite in seeking the face of God through prayer and fasting, persistently asking our Father to send revival to the church and spiritual awakening to our nation so that Christ's great commission might be fulfilled worldwide in our generation. They then issued five calls under that statement. A call to every Christian who cared about the mission of God to pray every day in their daily devotions for the revival of the Church of Jesus Christ and for the evangelization of the world. The second call was that every Christian who cared about the mission of God one day a week set aside time for fasting, whether it's missing a, a noon meal and spending that time in prayer or perhaps fasting from television, saying instead of going home and wasting my life on television, I'm going to go find a place to cry out to God for the revival of the church and the evangelization of the world. The third call was for individual congregations like ours once a month to call its people to a time of prayer for the revival of the church and the evangelization of the world. The fourth was a call to churches in a region to meet once quarterly, four times a year, for the express purpose of praying for the revival of the church and the evangelization of the world. And finally, that churches in May on 
the National Day of Prayer, which is coming again soon in the month of May. Gather together to pray for the revival of the church and the evangelization of the world. Seventeen years later, those men are all either dead or so old their voices have been quieted. The world has not been reached. The American church has not been revived. Instead, we've been attacked and diverted. What more could Satan want? And we've spent our blood and our people in endless war. Brothers and sisters, the world is a disaster. Our nation, the culture rot, is not because of the people out there with whom we disagree. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If the salt loses its savor, how is anything to survive? If the light does not shine brightly, how is the darkness to be dispelled? I heard that call. I read it. My heart was stirred. I knew the history of revival, and I was good for about a year. And then, like most others, except on the National Day of Prayer, I was swept along by prayers for other things. A son gone off to war. A nation torn and divided. Yes, we pray for those things. But Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. You want to do something about it? God does. Start here. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Would you stand? Father, you've given us everything. We are the freest, richest, healthiest people that have ever inhabited the planet. We have the resources, not just money, but the connections, the ways of discovering. But nothing good will happen if it doesn't begin in earnest prayers of confession that apart from you, we are helpless to extend your kingdom, that we need you. We need your power. We need your love flowing through us, your passion for this lost world. We need revival. We need awakening. And you stand ready, I believe, to send it. If only your people, if only we, if only I, will give ourselves no rest and give you no rest until the fire falls. Would you awaken a generation to pray as those Moravians prayed, to pray as those first Christians prayed, to pray until once again the nations hear the great good news that you offer 
an amnesty signed in the blood of your Son, life to those who trust. Until that day when every tribe and tongue and people and nation is represented round the throne. And so, may we long for and live for and go for and serve for and give for that day 